Hey, welcome to Grant's Interest Rate Observer of the Air. I am Jim Grant, and with me, as always, Eric Whitehead at the controls of this enterprise here, this podcast, and Phil Grant across from him. Phil Grant is the uh, proprietor of Almost Daily Grants, the uh, the, uh, must-read daily summary, almost daily summary of uh, the markets and their wiles. And uh, across from me immediately is the great deputy editor of Grant's, Evan Lorenz. So, gentlemen, uh, welcome. And ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Grant's this episode of the Grants Podcast. I want to I want to give a shout out to the listener who was walking at the east on West 52nd Street yesterday. That was about uh, 6:45. He passes me. He's wearing earphones, and uh, we pass. And you, you know you, you know the way you can tell if somebody is is stopped even when you're not looking and stop and turn around going to say something. Well, he stopped, turned around, and said this. He said, "Hey, I'm listening to your podcast right now." Yeah. So that reminds me that it's time to do a darn podcast. The guy's got good taste. Yeah, here we are. So today we are going to talk about some of the following things. We're going to talk about the future, of which nobody knows nothing. We're going to have a special July 4th message. We're going to ruminate on the uh, readings having to do with cash to debt in leveraged American companies and record share buybacks. We're going to talk about uh, cryptocurrencies and China and the future, as I said, the future about which nobody knows nothing. Now, the future to begin with, the future is a somewhat sensitive topic around here because we deal in it, yet it doesn't exist. Now, Eric right here is something of an authority in the future. He has been, uh, as you know, regular listeners, Eric vacations only in communist countries. It's something he does. He goes to Cuba, Vietnam. And as you have also heard, he has in his family have reservations at the, uh, at the flagship Days Inns in Pyongyang next February. Not one of these crummy, you know, beltway days ends. The, the, the main Only one, the best. The main one near right near that that fifty foot high lead statue of Kim Il Young Suk. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, Eric has seen into the future and has identified North Korea as an investment opportunity, apparently. But Jimmy Rogers was in the tape just yesterday saying that North Korea is the great play, and he's he's going to do it through South Korea. So Eric, that's you're a little different. You're going to go directly to North. Uh, I hear it has really nice beaches too. Yeah, but not in February no. so much. No. It's... <laughs> so Jimmy has this vision. Eric has a vision. But you know, it occurs to me, man, that uh, we were writing this week about uh, this uh, extraordinary binge of borrowing by some American companies, including AT&T, which is on the verge of showing $249 billion of debt, including off-balance sheet obligations and, uh, and pension retirement uh, stuff. And it occurs to me, Evan, that the rolling up of that kind of debt is a tacit assertion of foreknowledge. They, they can see, they can see into the future, they can see this going to work. And leverage is an expression of overconfidence in our financial future. I agree. Uh, they're looking past the present because I believe on a pro forma basis, Moffat Nathanson's shows that their EBITDA is actually contracting. So they're right. seeing a brighter future than they, uh, they see today. Yeah. Well, we'll see about the future in the fullness of time, I always say. Well, no more in 10 years. Um, but I wanted to, uh, uh, to get, you know, we, let's keep going because we have, uh, we have uh, all sorts of things to discuss. Oh, I forgot to mention our sponsor. Who? The sponsor happens to be uh, Grant's Interest Rate Observer. Which, to be sure, is a somewhat self-interested transaction, but uh, this this comes from Eric, our our uh, seer and investor. Eric came up with the idea of let let us offer, he said, a, a grants trial subscription uh, to the listeners of the podcast. We do it through other channels, so let's do it. All right, Eric, it's a good idea. So here's what you get: 
six issues of grants, plus a signed copy of uh, a hem, my latest book called The Forgotten Depression, which is a, okay, I'm going to ask you employees, is it not a fabulous, wonderful, eloquent historical narrative of the last governmentally unmedicated business cycle downturn, 1920-21? Does it not ring that particular bell? I think it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. So my son agrees with me. My immediate deputy editor says, yeah, Eric, you yeah, he's it's unanimous. <laughs> yeah, so you have to read the darn book. And to do that, all you got to do is subscribe to a six-month trial or a six-issue trial, sorry. And to do this, you go to uh, www.grantspub.com slash pod18. That's uh, grantspub.com slash pod18. That's, uh, you know, okay, I didn't mention the price. I couldn't because I was so embarrassed at how little it is. 349 pathetic U.S. dollars. You're giving it away. For six issues a signed copy of The Forgotten Depression. So well done, Eric. And thank you for your confirmation of the, the merits of this book, man. And for you, ladies and gentlemen, please do avail yourselves of this July 4th opportunity. And speaking of July 4th, before we get into China and cryptocurrencies and stock buybacks and debt, I want to read something. This is a July 4th themed message that comes to us from Thomas Jefferson. And I'm reading from the Albert J. Nock. It's N-O-C-K, a uh, very quirky and very excellent biography of Jefferson. Came out many, many decades ago, I guess in the 1930s. Uh, but here is Jefferson uh, writing to a friend of his uh, about what he proposes to do in the early phase of his first administration, which began in, I guess, 1801. So here is what he said, Jefferson said to a friend, that the path we have to pursue is so quiet that we have nothing scarcely to propose to our legislature. A noiseless course, not meddling with the affairs of others, unattractive of notice, is a mark that society is going on in happiness. Boy, I love that. All right, that's July 4th. Happy birthday, America. However, that's not getting us closer to China, Evan. It is not. China, uh, Evan is the Grant's interest rate observer sinologist, and I want to know what you think about this, Evan. Well, I, I know what the market thinks because the uh, Shanghai Composite uh, Stock Index is down 20% from its recent highs. The renminbi is down uh, 5% against the dollar uh, from its recent highs, and key commodities that are tied into uh, to China's growth model, like iron ore, down 20% plus uh, from their recent highs. Everyone sees China's uh, activity slowing. It's it's the economy still growing, but activity is kind of paring down. New loan growth is actually following year over year. But there's been an important change the, the other day. The China's central bank, the People's Bank of China, recently came out with a report that kind of signaled that they might actually be less focused on deleveraging and more focused on growth again. China, if you haven't followed, has exactly two uh, two modes of managing the economy. One is mashing down on the gas pedal until it hits the floor and then kind of, you know, allowing a bubble to blow up. And the other is mashing on the brakes and trying to undo the damage they just did but when they, you know, accelerated uh, haphazardly. But the new PBOC governor, Yi Gang, is now signaling that growth is more important than a crashing economy, a crashing stock prices, and everything else. That's just like a central banker. It is like a central banker. But unlike in the U.S., where we worry about like a wealth effect if the stock market falls too far, in China, it actually has real economic repercussions. Why, why is that? Well, a lot of companies have trouble borrowing because they are they may not be um, persona grata for banks. Like banks are not supposed to lend too much to property developers. So they get around this by pledging their shares. Either the founders do or the companies do. And there's something like 5 trillion renminbi uh, of shares pledged for loans. And as prices plunge, brokers 
want to call in these loans. So these are called margin loans in the West. They are margin loans, but it's not investors who are, you know, um, you know, pledging shares. It's the actual companies themselves. Um, the PBOC has intervened by telling brokers, if you want to sell shares, you're going to need to get our permission first. And, you know, that permission is probably not going to get uh, too easy. But they don't want the stock market to fall further. They they don't want the economy to crash. And they also don't really want to deal with the repercussions of a trade spat with, uh, with Trump. So it looks like China might be on the verge of switching from trying to pare back some of the excesses that they built up over the last couple of years to re-stimulating and trying to push growth forward. The, the question now, is, is this, is this speculative or how hard, how hard is this perception or how, how clear is the perception? Uh, it, it's mud. I mean, you, you really can't tell for sure. We'll, we'll, we'll find out in the coming weeks and months as we get more data, but with China, um, it's just hard to say the data is not good and, um, and we'll, we'll see when it happens. You know, sometimes they, that, uh, all purpose pronoun, uh, don't really have control. Evan is uh, in the in the current grants observes that uh, uh, Chinese M2 is almost identical in size to the combined money supplies defined as M2 of the United States and and the eurozone. That's true. So uh, China M2 foots to $26.5 trillion or, or 2.2 times Chinese GDP. And the US and uh, eurozone have uh, M2 of $27.8 trillion. One problem that China's had in the past is when people view the domestic market as not a great place to invest or they're worried about devaluation, they kind of decamp in mass outside. And that leads to a, a tightening of liquidity and a, and a financial crisis. We actually saw this in uh, August of uh, 2015 when the PBOC did a shock devaluation of like two or three percent, and that two or three percent was enough to actually change perceptions and cause money to f to fly out. It led to a big crash in the uh, S and P five hundred in commodities and just about everything. Well, I mean, the, the renminbi against the dollar is down by more than five percent from the highs of a few months ago, right? That hasn't yet, at least, caused such a reverberation. It hasn't uh, since twenty fifteen. The other thing they've done is they they try to put up more capital controls to make it more difficult to get money out. However, Chinese investors and companies are, are pretty savvy people, and they'll find cracks if they really want to get out. The other thing is China's banking system has just gotten so huge after so many successive years of stimulus. It's now $40.8 trillion. It's 51% of global GDP. There is no precedent for any banking system getting this large ever. Well, the Icelandic banking system with respect, you know, it, it, as a proportion of Icelandic GDP was certainly quite chunky. Yeah, it got to like eight to 10 times, but Iceland's a country of uh, 300,000 people. It's, You're so, oh wait, let me get this straight. You're saying that Iceland is less significant than China. Is that it? Uh, more significant if you're into COD, more significant if you're into beautiful landscapes and volcanoes and they're better soccer team too they, they have an amazing soccer team um well that was a nice that was a nice uh save there on your part evan but china's a 13 trillion dollar economy yeah. it's the biggest consumer well you know in, in in fairness to uh i don't know to the situation we have been you know expectantly you know watching watching china expectantly with uh, figuratively speaking now i'm just getting tangled up with, with hands over our ears and eyes closed waiting for the crash for <clears throat> years. We have. And the thing is, China always seems to be able to pull itself up. In 2009, they basically issued new loans that were like 40% of GDP right. at the time. Yeah. In 13, it seemed like there's a little crisis. So they, you know, mashed on the accelerator then. In 15, and early 16, they massively stimulated and that kind of bailed out, you know, emerging markets in the commodity sector. But with with every bailout, uh, debt becomes uh, more... Larger and larger. Uh, the financial also, system gets more and more bloated. It gets on less, more precarious footings. I mean, at one point, it's going to topple. Uh, when that is, it's 
hard to predict. But you know, sorry, uh, oh, just one follow-on on, on that is that if you look at the credit impulse, Chinese credit impulse, with each of those reflations, those uh, stimulus attempts, uh, the, it, the effect has been increasingly uh, less each time. In, in 2009, it yeah. was uh, the, the biggest change. Yeah, it's diminishing returns. Yeah, right. uh, way back when, uh, and during the 1980s, uh, this publication uh, sang the same song with respect to uh, Japan, which is, was, we I think the uh, metaphor we used was uh, Japan is like an anvil suspended over the head of the world economy on dental floss, if memory serves, because China's banking system was distended and the credit quality was obviously precarious and, and uh, unsound. It was these banks were chock-a-block full of, of speculative real estate debt. Japan, rather, did uh, suffer a banking crisis and did suffer a deflationary hangover that still has not yet passed. China is much, much bigger than Japan was well, in absolute terms and as a percentage of uh, the economy. And not as a percent of world GDP. And uh, actually, 92 and 93, Japan was, um, I think, 17 or 18 percent of it was a larger portion of world GDP than China is today. China is a ah, much, China so, is, China is a much larger consumer of global commodities than Japan was. But but as a percentage of world GDP, Japan was larger in the nineteen in the early nineteen nineties. Yeah. I need to get the exact numbers, but uh, Japan was larger. Um, I mean, there's puts and takes on both sides. Um, Japan's financial system is is much larger than anything that Japan uh, Japan ever had. No, either, China is. Uh, China is much yeah. larger than anything Japan's ever had, uh, either in both in absolute terms and relative terms. China is a much larger consumer of global commodities than Japan ever was. It's a much larger population. It, but on the other side, uh, its financial system is largely inward looking. I mean, if its financial system crashes, it's not clear what the direct impact is to the rest of the world, other than a big decline in probably commodity consumption. I don't know. I mean, it, it seems to me China is, is consequential enough such that an internal crash would be... Uh, a, a very worrisome event for everyone. You know, it's it's hard enough running a financial system when information is uh, is unfiltered and free, if sometimes unreliable in its accuracy. How much more difficult in a society in which information is controlled from the top and uh, and distorted willfully for the purposes of policymaking? So the other week, uh, it came out that the year-over-year -year change in fixed asset investment in China was the lowest it's been since the series created in the late like 90s. 6%. Yeah, 6% or 6.1%. Goldman Sachs apparently came out and said, don't, don't worry about that. They're, what they're actually doing is adjusting for the fact that the data was bad years prior, so they actually needed to adjust down the number. But the, the, the real activity is okay, just the data is bad. But other bad data is showing, you know, good activity. It's just... Yeah, well, uh, it seems to me that's uh, Goldman Sachs a little bit uh, too conversant with the uh, techniques of securities price manipulation. So then we'll let that one go. But um, I would uh, expect a little bit more moral outrage from the uh, leading lights, shall we say, of the sell side. But Phil, you came across uh, something today that I thought was striking in its symmetry. It has to do with share buybacks and with cash and debt. What are those yeah, facts? Yes. So um, uh, some data that I saw in a recent uh, CNBC article that corporations uh, in the U.S. hold the lowest ratio of cash to debt. Um, uh, I think that the 12 percent, which is the lowest in, in quite some time in the 2014 that that ratio uh, reached 14 and, and we have exceeded that in terms of, of greater corporate leverage um, and so while that's happening the first quarter stock buybacks among u.s corporations uh, reached a, a record high uh, of I, I believe the, the figures i don't have it in front of me i think it's 189 billion uh, yes 189.1 yeah. so uh, while cash levels dwindle stock buybacks uh, percolate with with the market at virtually uh, all-time highs so so the stock buybacks it says here uh, according to the associate press reached uh, 189.1 billion the first quarter and that uh, compares with a prior record of 171.9 billion set in the summer of 2007 that fateful
fateful summer. Uh, of course, the market's much bigger than it was then. So uh, still, we can agree that a lot of stocks are being repurchased in the open market at, at high very, prices, very fancy valuations. Yeah. So uh, I don't know. If we, if we got everything off our chest, man. What do you think? I, oh, yeah, I don't think I, Evan. I don't think we've heard from you about cryptocurrencies. <laughs> this is Evan is uh, is the uh, responsibility for many areas in the here at Grants, and uh, phony money is one of them. So Evan, will you tell us please about? Uh, yeah, I, I, I'd like to start by a, a headline in Bloomberg today. Bitcoin bloodbath nears dot-com levels as many tokens go to zero. And the article goes on to note that Bitcoin is down 70% from its December highs and hundreds of other coins have virtually gone to zero. The Nasdaq composite in the dot-com crash actually fell 78%. So its crash is almost as big as it. Now, there's been some negative news in Bitcoin lately. There was two South Korean uh, exchanges that got hacked. Japan is actually tightening up regulation, but that's nothing new uh, in Bitcoin because- On the other side of the ledger, Evan, um, Facebook is now allowing a little bit of Bitcoin advertisement. <laughs> Although, yeah, yeah the, the, but the Wall Street Journal and the Herd on the Street column, the Herd on the Street column is a very excellent column mm, in Wall Street yes. Journal. An item yesterday, I think, about how, uh, uh, about this Facebook decision, you know, it's going to allow some advertising for the cryptos. And the author of this item said, uh, well, that may or may not make a difference. You know, the only monetary asset in the world in which you see advertising is gold bullion, which is been, <laughs> which has not distinguished no, itself. No. Uh, for the... I, I've actually seen advertising for the ETFs too, so I don't know what that says about them. Yeah. No, but uh, but the, the interesting thing that we've learned this month is um, is something about Tether. Now, Tether is something they call a stable coin. Each Tether is supposedly backed one for one with a dollar. There was a report out earlier this month by uh, John Griffin and Ammon Shams, who are uh, academics at the University of Texas at Austin, and they play out pretty convincingly that it appears that Tether might have been printed in the last um, 18 months to prop up Bitcoin's price and kind of manipulate the market upwards. Tether is co-owned by the largest Bitcoin exchange called Bitfinex and both Tether and- Largest Bit or um, second or third largest? It changes on the day. Um, sometimes they're the largest Bitcoin exchange, sometimes anyway, they're the fourth yeah. largest. However, on their website, they claim to be overall the largest exchange okay. on cryptocurrencies. Yep. So I'm just taking their advertising at face okay. value, but on a day-to-day -day basis, they might be the fourth largest exchange. But this kind of activity He's not going to notice. Um, the CFTC started uh, subpoenaing Bitcoin and Tether in December. The Department of Justice in uh, May began its own investigation. And since Amin and Shams' paper, we or Griffin and Shams' paper, we've actually gotten other news. Bloomberg today actually noticed very, very suspicious Tether trading on other crypto exchanges that couldn't be explained. Um, people were trading Tether out to like the fifth decimal point. So a Tether, which is worth a dollar, they'd be trading like 1.15769, whatever uh, Tether, amounts that make no sense. And these were matched on the other side with trades in other cryptocurrencies that seem to push the price of those currencies up and not really push the price of Tether at all. It seems like there's just a lot of suspicious stuff going on with Tether. And the reason why Tether is so important is a lot of the cryptocurrency exchanges can't get access to the banking system. And the reason why is banks, in order to you know take a client, they have to cover know your customer and they also have to take uh, precautions for anti-money laundering. A lot of exchanges don't really vet their customers well and they allow, some exchanges allow customers on without any vetting if they come on with crypto deposits and only trade crypto. I know this is a fact for Bitfinex. So what happens is Tether kind of substitutes for dollars for like, you know, the grease that, you know, pushes the entire market along. Griffin and uh, Shams note that more cryptocurrencies are traded against Tethers than they are against dollars. So if there's a it's problem- a It's a regulatory workaround. It is. It, it's, it's a wonderful regulatory workaround uh, that might be built on very shaky foundations. Well, ladies and gentlemen, there you have it. We have, uh, I don't know, we've reviewed the following topics. Um, passing conversation on West 52nd Street, the future and how little some of us know, but some of us have actually know a lot about the future. Thomas Jefferson, China, and uh, cryptocurrencies, and debt, and stock buybacks, and the uh, 
fabulous, uh, irresistible offer to uh, subscribe to Grants. Now that is a podcast. Yeah, that's a podcast. So ladies and gentlemen, thank you one and all, and happy fourth, and we look forward to uh, seeing you again. Mm-hmm.